Hey, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why people protest and riot, according to social psychology, and how scientists stimulated the brains of blind people to make them see shapes. We'll wrap up by testing your knowledge with this month's edition of the Curiosity Challenge. Let's satisfy some of that curiosity. Every time there's a protest or a riot, it's common to hear complaints about the quote-unquote mindless violence and claims that they're just a convenient excuse for criminal behavior. But social psychologists wouldn't agree. There's been a ton of research on this, and scientists have identified predictable triggers for protests and riots. They're not mindless, and they're not just an excuse. They actually follow a pretty logical pattern. So here's why research suggests people protest and riot. According to Dutch social psychologist Bert Klandermans, protests follow their own principle of supply and demand. The demand in this case is the number of people who sympathize with the cause. The supply is the opportunity to protest. The third element in this model is mobilization. That's the thing that brings supply and demand together into action. So it sounds simple enough, but each of those elements has a lot of different ingredients. Like, the people who form the demand can be united by demographics, like age or race or social class. Or they can be united by shared grievances. When a big group of people feels vulnerable or helpless because of a shared identity, that can be enough. It could be just one issue, whether it's geographic, political, sexual, racial, or religious. The supply or opportunity to protest comes down to how well the movement is organized. Lots of people angry about the same thing isn't enough to form a protest. Movements need to get the word out in order to assemble at the same place and time. Demand doesn't achieve anything without supply, and supply won't achieve anything without the people's demand. And a single event can catapult that ratio into action, and boom, you've mobilized a protest. But why do people protest? I mean, why not just vote or call up their politicians? Well, social psychology can also tell us about that. One reason is a lack of trust in government. It's normal to feel angry when you feel you've been lied to or taken advantage of by those in power. And speaking to current demonstrations, in 2019, the Pew Research Center estimated that one-third of Americans had low faith in government. So this data point checks out. There's also the communal aspect of the protest itself. There's the shared intensity of emotion, the anonymity of the crowd, and the efficiency of making your voice heard as a group. And these aren't just speculative. Again, this is all backed by research. And even the more destructive aspects of riots have logic to them. Research performed after riots around the world finds that the areas and industries that are targeted are usually symbolic to the cause, while those that aren't are usually left alone. Emphasis on usually, obviously there are exceptions. Protests can sometimes feel like chaos, but they do happen for a reason. It's definitely not just mindless behavior. Scientists recently made people see shapes that weren't there just by stimulating the vision center of their brains. This is a breakthrough that could be a big step toward creating a visual prosthetic to help blind people see. So acquired blindness is blindness you aren't born with. And it's generally caused by damage to either the eyes or the optic nerves. 
But a lot of times, the region of the brain that processes vision, the visual cortex, is still fully functional. That might mean that one day we could restore people's sight by sending signals straight into the visual cortex. Researchers have been working on this for a lot longer than you'd think. 1968 was when scientists first implanted patients' brains with electrodes attached to radio receivers, which made them see points of light called phosphenes. That term refers to any impression of light that comes from inside your body. It's the same thing you might see if you press on your eyeball or see stars when you hit your head. Now, researchers have learned to manipulate phosphenes by actually quote-unquote drawing shapes on people's brains. For this study, researchers at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston recruited four-sighted people and two blind people, all of whom already had electrodes in their visual cortices for unrelated reasons. Ideally, a visual prosthetic would use electrodes implanted in a grid of neurons in a specific region of the visual cortex called the retinotopic map. This is the area that receives signals from retinal nerves. Because these nerves are laid out on the surface of the cortex in a way that corresponds to what the brain actually sees, you could stimulate these electrodes like pixels on a screen to make people see an image. The problem is that neurons aren't exactly like pixels, and printing a shape by stimulating all the necessary neurons at one time only seems to generate a big blob of light. The researchers in this study didn't have a whole grid of electrodes. They just had the few that were already implanted. But they realized that by stimulating two electrodes at once and carefully altering the current, they could create the impression of a third virtual electrode that moved between them. With that technique, they were able to draw shapes on the visual cortex that subjects could see. They might see a point of light draw a letter Z or a backward R, all just from electric current in their brains. The next step is to do this with many more electrodes on many more neurons. We're still pretty far from inserting images inception style into the brain, but we're also closer to it than we've ever been. Baby steps. It's time once again for the Curiosity Challenge. Every month, I call up a listener and I put them to the test by asking three questions from stories we ran on Curiosity Daily in the previous month. For this Curiosity Challenge, I talked to Michelle in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's a zoologist, science communicator, and Curiosity Daily fan who, full disclosure, is a Twitter pal who's been seriously feeding my newfound interest in birding. Anyway, without further ado, here's this month's Curiosity Challenge. Are you ready to get started? I'm excited. I'm nervous. <laughs> I've been cramming. Let's do it. Perfect. All right. Here's your first question. New research suggests that this mysterious animal's single tusk evolved not to fight or to catch prey, but to attract mates. What animal is it? And I'll give you three options. A, the narwhal, B, the unicorn fish, or C, the rhinoceros? I'm going to go with narwhal. That is correct. Yeah. The narwhal's tusk is sexually selected. And also the unicorn fish is totally a real fish. I had to look that up, but. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Moving right along. Number two. Scientists recently went above and beyond to figure out whether Bronze Age swords were actually used in sword fights. What did they do? A, did they stab cadavers to see if the marks matched those of long-dead warriors? Did they, B, stage real sword fights to see if the marks left on the weapons matched those on real artifacts? 
Or C, did they create a video game that simulated sword fights with Bronze Age weapons? I mean, A and C would both be pretty cool, but I'm pretty sure it was B in the end. Yes, it was B. <laughs> I came up with the stabbing cadavers all on my own. So, yes, I mean, they... <laughs> I think you should write a grant. That's all yeah, right, I'm totally. Yes, so they did actually <laughs> stage real sword fights. They used medieval fencing manuals to do the exact moves that they thought would have been used, and they matched. Last one. You've got two for two. This is great. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> When it comes to wounds, science says rub some dirt on it might be good advice. Why? A. Dirt contains clay, which can have antibacterial properties. B. Dirt contains silicates, which help speed up blood clotting. C. Both A and B. Or D. Neither. Ooh, I remember the clay, but I, I might go with A and B. You're right. It's A and B. Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both clay and silicates. It can be antibacterial and it can help blood clot. So awesome. You got all three right. Congratulations, Michelle. Yes. <laughs> you won. <So> excited. <laughs> Wasn't that great? Michelle did her homework. If you'd like to play next month or if you have a question that you'd like us to answer on the show, shoot us an email at podcast at curiosity.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you'll hear next week on Curiosity Daily. Next week, you'll learn about how people can hear body language in your voice, why peanut butter gets gum out of hair, the perks of making major life decisions by flipping a coin, two types of injustice and how you respond differently to each one, and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. We learned that protests are actually pretty predictable. They can happen when enough people sympathize with a cause, there's an opportunity to protest, and a movement is well-organized enough to mobilize. And people choose to protest when they lose faith in the government, and they also do it for those communal aspects, like sharing the emotional intensity, being able to stay anonymous, and the efficiency of making your voice heard as a group. And we also learned that researchers figured out how to use electrodes to manipulate phosphenes to make both blind and sighted people see shapes. This is a big step towards one day figuring out how to stimulate the visual cortex to restore people's sight. Again, long way to go, but, you know, gotta start somewhere. Yeah, we have prosthetics that help people hear, cochlear implants, so one day we might have prosthetics that help people see, too. And we also learned that Michelle pays attention when she listens to this podcast. And I wanted to say, she's been feeding your birding hobby. I am so into the birds in my backyard. We have cardinals, like, all the time. Oh, so jealous. Cardinals have been my white whale, they show up, but they won't come to my bird feeder. They'll like hang out just below the window or they'll hang out on a distant branch and maybe they'll they'll hop on the bird feeder for like a second and then they'll fly away. And it's like, oh, you're so pretty. Come to me. We haven't figured out where to put our bird feeder yet. It, there's many options in the yard, but we have some, you know, landscaping, gardening, that kind of thing. So we're, we're... well, I mean, it's great having it right next to a window, really. Yeah, but in the meantime, the squirrels are the greatest thing to watch. Like, I don't even think my wife wants to buy a cat anymore because we have so much fun watching these two squirrels and they're just <laughs> always running around and like trolling each other. I don't know. Like squirrels are some of the most fun things in the world to watch. I, I don't know. I, I think I have a very renewed appreciation for how awesome nature is. Like, I'll just sit on my back deck and look outside for hours and be very happy so yeah get outside if you can see some nature i love that yes 
Today's stories were written by Kelsey Donk and Cameron Duke and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Have a great weekend and join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.